Christian Church. We hope you enjoy this message and we would love for you to join us on Sunday mornings at 1030. We're located at 432 East Pleasant in Tulare. After listening to this message, take a moment to browse our website for current and upcoming events. It is our prayer that ultimately you learn to love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Well, I really am excited today to begin a new book. Uh, we're going to go into the book of Ephesians. Uh, we just finished the book of Esther. And, and Ephesians, we're just going to race through this book at breakneck speeds. We may even get to one verse today. But the book of Ephesians is just packed with so many promises for our lives. At one point in this book, Paul preaches for, for three chapters about what God has done for you and I. What God's done for us. And we keep trying to respond to God with, well, what am I supposed to do? If God has done these things for me, what am I supposed to do? How am I supposed to, to, to live? How am I supposed to do all these things? And, and this really goes back to what we kind of talked about last week at the, at the end of Esther. Because God, first and foremost, wants to bless us because he loves us, not because we do good deeds for him. Our good deeds are response to God's love in our own life. Paul will teach for three chapters about what God has done for us, and then one little verse he will say, so walk worthy. That's it, Paul? Walk worthy? Three chapters about what God has done, then and for us, walk worthy. And we'll get to that. That should be our response, because there's nothing that we can do to get God to love us more. All because our response should be walk worthy. The Apostle Paul will teach us about God's amazing grace. But we cannot really get into to Ephesians before we go to, to Ephesus. And Ephesus goes back to Acts chapter 19. And we, we just got through you know, studying the book of Acts. And, and this is going to be a great review for, for some of us as we uh, you know, uh, review kind of a Paul and, and Ephesus. So if you look, I, I grabbed a map and I, I put it up. This is one of the maps that we've used before, and I, I kind of wanted to, to bring this out again. And, and if you look around uh, to see Ephesus, it's at the very end of the long arrow that, that goes from red to blue. At the very end, there it has Ephesus. And kind of get yourself oriented. Then if you go back to the far right of this map and down, you'll see a dot that has Jerusalem on this. And this is where Paul would have received all his intensive training about being a Jew, a Pharisee. A Pharisee of Pharisees. He would have, he would have studied there under the, the great teacher, uh, and I always pronounce his name wrong, uh, uh, Gamaliel or something to that effect. But this was like the teacher of teachers in Israel. And this is where he would have studied. And, you know, he studied all things Jewish. And then he went out into the world and traveled, especially after uh, receiving Christ. And, and, and all the rest of the time of his life, he really spent unlearning all the things that he learned in Jerusalem. He was a Jew of Jew, a Pharisee of Pharisees, an incredible scholar who spoke several languages. This is the type of guy that you would have been fascinated with the stories that he had to tell about his travels. 
He was well-educated and well-traveled. He traveled with a guy named Luke who, who wrote the book of Acts, and a very detail-oriented guy, and this is why we have all the details through the book of Acts. And then if you, you kind of go along the coast there, for, uh, right north of Jerusalem, you go up there, you'll see Antioch. This is where the church really became the church to all the nations. When it was in Jerusalem, it was kind of just a, a Jewish thing, an extension of the Jewish thing. And then the church, you know, you know the, this church of Antioch had guys like Paul and Silas and Barnabas. Even today, the church is still there and it has such a great heritage. And then if you keep going, going up and you go around to, to, the, to the left there, you'll see modern-day Turkey where Ephesus is. Now this is called, uh, this, this area is called Asia, which is very confusing for us because uh, Asia for us in our modern day map is what? Japan, the Philippines, other countries on, on that end of things. This is not, but the Bible times, this is what was called Asia. And it's amazing that Paul traveled so much as he did. Just from, from getting to, you know, from Jerusalem to Ephesus is over 900 miles. Now we think 900 miles, no big deal. How, how, fast you drive, you know, say 90 miles per hour, I would say it's a little too fast. Let's go off at 75 miles per hour. This is a 12-hour trip. Do you, you know, some, some people get up really early, would take it all in one day, and, and other people would say, hey, let's make a two-day trip out of it. It's not that hard of a trip, but they didn't have cars. So, so they took boats, they took camels, they took donkeys. They took all their people and all their supplies to, uh, to be able to survive along the way. So it took years for Paul to travel all the places that he had traveled. It's not like a two-week trip. I mean, they covered 15 miles a day when they had a whole group with them. You know, if you're really trucking it, you can, you can get up to 30 miles a day, uh, maybe 40 miles a day if you only got a couple of people with you, depending on what you're riding on. But 15 miles a day was, was very typical. So these guys had to be in good physical c- condition to be able to travel like this. Now, Paul was in Ephesus several times. His first journey, he came through and, and met some friends there, and then he left. So on his second journey, he wanted to come back, and he wanted to stay for a while. So let's, we're going to jump into, if you'll turn to Acts 19, we'll get there in a second, but uh, we're going to remind ourselves of who he is writing to. And I'm going to tell a little bit of the story instead of going through and reading all of it, but Paul has come to Ephesus, Ephesus and the first thing he runs into is a group of guys, 12 guys, who are followers of John the Baptist. Now, what's amazing is 22 years before, John the Baptist has has died. Uh, He was killed 22 years before this. So these guys were very cut and dry. Think of the most southern of southern Baptist churches you could figure out, you know. And the guy standing in the pulpit screaming at you going, Repent! That's these guys. I mean, these guys were, were all about repenting. These 12 guys are followers of that teaching. It's ironic. John never left Israel, yet you see these guys here. So they're carrying on his ministry 22 years later. It's not a very seeker-friendly church that we have today. Would it, you know, it wouldn't be that same way because he was so harsh. John the Baptist was not a fun person to be around. He lived a very simple life. He didn't wear fancy clothes. You know, people dress up for church. No, no, John would dress down for church. John would dress down. He would just wear simple clothes, period. He didn't eat fancy meals. He didn't have a a cup of coffee while studying the Bible because that's, you know, that's distracting. 
It was considered sinful because he had to focus. So these 12 guys were probably acting the same way. So Paul runs into these guys somewhere in the city, most likely at the synagogue where he would go and teach every day. They liked Paul because Paul was a Pharisee. He was a rule guy. They would track with his way of, uh, of living because he studied under the, you know, the top rule guy in Israel. But they didn't really know about the Jesus thing. They really didn't understand where Paul was going to go, and they would invite Paul to, to teach in the synagogue, but, but they didn't really know about the other part. So finally, Paul says to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit? They look at each other and go, what? What, spirit? what is he talking about? No, we, we have no idea what you're talking about. He's like, well, that makes total sense for you guys because you guys are so legalistic in your views and your teaching. You're so religious. You're so empty in what you believe. You're good at quoting verses. You're good at, at, at following all the rules, but there's no life in you. There's no power. And they, they kind of connect with this and they say, this is what we've been missing. See, they, they thought that guy number seven just hadn't repented enough, and that's why they, they weren't powerful in their ministry. And Paul goes, oh man, let me lay hands on you guys. So these 12 guys become the core of the church in Ephesus. And people have, you know, you know, people have been saved from religion to understand what I'm talking about here. They really start to understand grace. Have you ever been saved from religion? Do you, is anybody following with what I'm saying here? Anybody grow up where, where religion was so harsh and so cut and so dry and, and really grace had no place in it? Well, that's what these guys were like. What's great about being saved from religion is you already know the Bible. You've all, you know, in a sense, it's been beaten into your head. You already know the songs. The only difference is you start to apply this to your life with grace. So Paul comes in and tells them, you have all the parts. Now let me put grace in there and it'll fit together really nice and neat. So he helps them and puts a great thing together for them. And once grace gets involved, it's like putting oil in an engine. It reduces that friction. It's like putting ointment on a, on a wound. If you ever had two, two cuts and you put ointment on one and it heals quicker than the other? You know, you've seen the commercials, you know, two or three days faster. It really does. I used to be an athletic trainer. We'd, you know, patch up all the football players all the time. And if you put ointment on it and cover it up and keep it clean, it heals a lot quicker. That is like grace in our lives. So Paul stayed around and he enjoyed teaching these guys. And, he, and you know, it takes time to wash legalism out of our system. Because grace is, is like a constant stream. And if you stand in that stream long enough, it's going to wash that legalism right out of your life. It's going to wash that sin right out of your life because the grace of God is a very powerful thing. So just soak in it. When we do this, it starts to show us who Christ is in our own lives. See, the Apostle Paul is going to teach us about who we are in Christ through the book of Ephesians. 35 times he mentions who we are in Christ. Now, when he's writing the book of Ephesians, he's thinking about these guys. He's thinking about these guys, that, you know, the, the first group he came in contact with, the, the core group that is still there. That's who he's thinking about. Because he's writing Ephesians from Rome, you know, years later. The Apostle Paul had a couple with him, Aquila and Priscilla, and they stayed in Ephesus for three years. Now, when he came there, he wasn't planning on staying for three years. For Paul to stay in one place for three years is, is you know, almost like a miracle. 
because Paul was kind of a go-getter. Paul wanted to, to travel. He wanted to tell as many people about Christ as he could. He didn't sit still very long, but here for three years. So during the first three months of Acts 19, it tells us that he spent every day teaching in a synagogue. He just couldn't get away from the Jews. He tried. The Jews just kept rejecting him, kept rejecting him. And he, 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 you know, at one point he just said, I'm not even going to go back to the Jews. But of course he goes back to the synagogue because he loves his people. He even went by his Roman name Paul instead of his Jewish name Saul. But he loved his people so he kept going back. So every day in synagogue, he would, he would fight with them. You know, it, we call it discussion, don't we, when we have a church fight? We're just discussing the matter. Really, when you're fighting, that's what he would do. He'd go in and really debate with these guys. At first, they were like, hey, we got this guy, you know, he, he's a Pharisee, so we're going to invite him down to the temple. Welcome, Paul. And he started teaching about Jesus as the Messiah. And then they would be like, huh, what did he just say? And then they would start fighting about it. Even today, if you go to Israel, and, and, and I should have pulled up a, a, a moving, a, we actually have a video camera on the Western Wall. You can look it up, and uh, it's really cool. But you'll see guys down by the Western Wall, you know, uh, where the temple was in Jerusalem, and they'll be down there, and they'll have the Torah out, and they'll be fighting with each other. They'll be screaming and pointing at each other because they're debating the finer points of, of what the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, had to say. That's what they would do. You know, they're like, well, I, I follow Rabbi so-and-so, and he says this. And the other person goes, well, I've been following Rabbi so-and-so, and he says it's this. And they would just go at it, you know. Well, Paul comes across this guy named Tyrannus, which means tyranny. His parents probably named him as a toddler. You know, and this guy had some type of college nearby, some type of a teaching school. So we asked Paul to come over in the afternoons to teach now, the afternoons is when everybody would take a break. It gets really hot in Ephesus during this time of the year in Greece and different places. And, and literally, they shut down in the afternoons. Uh, when, I, when I took a mission trip to, to, to Athens, to, to Greece, uh, you know, we'd go out in the afternoons and everything would be shut down. We're like, what's going on? Well, they would c come back alive about 6 or 7 o'clock and they would eat their evening meal about 10 o'clock. Uh, kind of different from the way we do it. So in the afternoons, they would all go take their naps. Well, Paul, they invited to come to the school and teach in the afternoons. So Paul, as he did this, the tradition says that both men and women would just pack in there, which is kind of unheard of because they kind of split most of the time. So for three years, he was able to teach at this place. So he teaches them everything he knows about the Lord. And out of this, guys would go out to all these little towns in the area and start a church. Over to Colossae and Sardis and Philadelphia and, and think, of, uh, think of some of the Revelation churches, that, you know, the seven different churches of Revelation. This is where they would have been, you know, they would have started in Ephesus and gone out and started these churches. There was over 230 small communities in the area. And this is where, where Christianity really started out in this area. Now, some other background for Ephesus is it's a center of worship for the goddess Diana. And she is quite a gal, let me tell you. Now, she is made up. She is not real. They made her up. But the Romans called her Diana, and the Greek called her, calls her Artemis. And even to this day, there's certain witchcraft books that will, will evoke the goddess of Ephesus. So it's a, a demonic force here. Now, two guys... Uh, 
they wake up one day and they decide to, to make a god. And what happened was this, this meteorite fell out of the sky and landed in their field that they were farming. And these farm boys found this meteorite and, and they, they, they looked at it and they said that, you know, the gods have sent an image of themselves. So they took this rock that looked, a, you know, a little bit like a person and it, and it looked a little bit like a woman and it had a lot of these bumps. So they said, well, those were all breasts. So therefore, uh, you, you know, they made it into a god and they sold a lot of replicas. Even today, you can go find a replica of this. And they said it was the goddess of fertility, and they began to worship her. And this temple became one of the seven wonders of the world. They still, uh, the ruins are still there. It's the largest building of the, of the time. And there's a guy that traveled a lot, and his name was uh, Antipater of Sidon. And he compiled a list of the seven wonders of the world. And he describes the, seven, uh, the, the, the finished temple uh, like this. He says, I've set my eyes on the walls of lofty Babylon, on which is a road for chariots. The wall was an eight-mile-long wall that they could ride three chariots side by side all the way around the inner city of Babylon, okay? I mean, this is a phenomenal place. And the statue of Zeus by the Alphenus, and the hanging gardens, and the Colossus of the sun, and the huge labor of the huge pyramids, and the vast tomb of, of uh, Mos, uh, I can't even pronounce that, this guy's tomb. But when I saw the house of Artemis and, mount, and that it mounted to the clouds, those other marvels lost their brilliancy. And, and I said, lo, apart from Olympus, the sun never looked so aught, so grand. I mean, this was a big deal. This building was huge. It had 117 ionic uh, columns weighing 16 tons each that were 50 to 60 foot high. I mean, it was quite a temple to put this little meteor rock that was about the size of your hand in the middle of to be able to worship. And they worshiped in a very carnal way. And I'm not going to go into it, but uh, I would say imagine, but don't even imagine. They worship in a way that was just unbelievable. Not a way that we would call worship at all. So the city literally is built around this temple. Every store had trinkets to sell. Every, you know, it, it was right on the ocean. So, so all these people would come from around the, the known world at the time to, to, to you know, boat into Ephesus to, to be able to see this uh, temple. And many of them would go in and worship. Now, have you ever heard of the term abracadabra? Okay, this is where it came from. The word abracadabra is a magical word, is what they say. It's really a demonic word, and it comes out of Ephesus, and this is what it is. It's a cloth or a piece of papyrus that they would write a spell on, on the papyrus, or this cloth, for a fee. So you would go down and you would tell them what your, your problem is, or what you want, you know, whatever you want solved, or whatever you want to happen. They would write it down on this little thing, and then they would in a sense, tape it or stick it on your skin underneath your clothing somewhere. And the writing would connect with your skin. skin. And, and a few days or a few weeks later, you would come back and they would pull it off. And as they pulled it off, they would go, abracadabra! And the writing would be gone. Because it, basically what happened was, is, it's basic science, it would absorb into the skin. But to them, that was like, whoa, magic. You know, like those little kits we got, uh, kits that we got as kids, you know, and we go around and pretend like we're doing magic, and we always go, abracadabra. 
and you'd pull a you know, fake rabbit out of a hat, and your mom's sitting there going, okay, I'll laugh. You know, okay, maybe that just happened to me. But I'm just saying. They considered it a magical word, but it was a very evil word. Well, fascinating things starts to happen in, in Acts 19, starting in, a, in, in verse 11. It says that God did extraordinary miracles. And believe me, Luke has seen a lot of miracles by now. So God has done extraordinary miracles through Paul. So, he, so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that have touched him were taken to the sick, and their illnesses were cured, and the evil spirits left them. Here Paul's trying to work, so, you know, he, he works and teaches. So he works in the morning, and then he would teach in the afternoon, and he, you know, he's trying to get all this done. He has, you know, extra rags around. You wipe your brow because you're sweating, because you're working hard. And, you, you know, you put your apron down, or you put your cloth down, and you, you go off to lunch, and you come back, and all these things are gone. Where, where'd it go? I thought I put it right here. People would come in, and they literally would steal them. They had these extraordinary healing powers because of God. Not because of anything else. And it's starting to unlock their faith. Remember, these are Ephesians. This is not like these guys are going, abracadabra, that's so silly. Oh, these guys aren't going, oh, that's a silly Ouija board, no big deal. These guys believed in all this stuff. They knew what was evil, and they called it good. They lived in an upside-down world, and I'm sure many of us can relate to that, where certain things that we call uh, good, you're sitting there going, really, that's not good. But we love it because that's what the world says is good. They're living in an upside-down world. Paul did not tell them to take these cloths and go heal people, but they're taking them, and they're placing them on Aunt Myrna's head, and her headache is gone. Then they take it and they put it on their son's leg that, you know, it's a little shorter than the other, and lo and behold, it starts growing out right before their eyes because God is doing miracles. The Holy Spirit is relating to their culture, but not with evil, but with good. Now, it's an interesting thing because if you own a TV, I'm sure you've seen a TV evangelist, they've tried to imitate this a lot for a fee, of course. You know, just send in a fee and we'll pray for you. But these guys, they're imitating Paul. They're taking the cloths and putting them on. Do you see Paul charging for this at all? No, absolutely not. So we have to be careful with taking something that the Lord is doing and trying to bottle it like a lot of of TV evangelists try to do. So many people were healed and the evil spirits are starting to come out of them, and it's changing the town. Verse 13, it says, Some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord, Jesus, over those who were demon-possessed. These guys are going to be in big trouble here in a second. They would say, In the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. And basically what they're saying is, I command you, abracadabra. That's what they're doing right here. So the seven sons of Sceva... I love that. It sounds like a band, doesn't it? The seven sons of Sceva. A Jewish chief priest were doing this. And this is very funny to me. I mean, the, the, the word here went, you know, they were strolling. Uh, the word went means they were strolling around. They were just going around. And so you have this Jewish priest and, and his seven sons. And, and, and they're, you know, obviously they've never encountered a real evil spirit. But they're about to. This is their whole business. This is their livelihood. This, you know, it's a scam, but they've been doing it for years, enough to take care of seven different households, enough to, to pay the salary of seven households. Why? 
Because people like to be free. You have an ailment. You have a problem. Don't you want to be free of that? You have certain that's been bothering you. You have a certain sin that is going on in your life. Don't you want to be done with that? Don't you want that to come out? Well, that's, uh, people are just like us. So next Thursday, show up with 50 bucks and I'll take care of that. That's basically what they were saying. Now, Paul comes to this town and all of a sudden, let's do what he's doing. This is the new thing. He must, be, he must have some other trick. It's new. So, so what happens? Well, it says one day, verse 15, the evil spirit answered them. Jesus, I know. The word here, know, is epikonosko, which means I have experience. You know, the, 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 the spirit is like, I've experienced Jesus. It's kind of interesting because they're 900 miles away from where, Ju- where Jesus lived. It's funny how demons 900 miles away have experienced Jesus. It's because he's not fixed by this world. And then he goes, and I know about Paul. And the word here means observed. I've been watching Paul. But who are you? Now, if an evil spirit ever says this to, the, uh, this to you, you are what? You're in big trouble. I say run. Verse 16, it says, Then a man who had an evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. And the word naked means naked. I mean, this, guy, this spirit went after them. When this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus. So this, this became the story of Ephesus. This is like breaking news on TV. You know, and every 15 minutes, you know, it's coming back up on the headline news or something like that. I mean, the story's going around the whole town, the whole area. And all this happened just because they said the name of Paul and they said the name of Jesus. Here we see see the effect of the power of the Holy Spirit. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead that is in Paul. And Paul writes that this is a spirit that lives in us. So here's what happens. They were seized with fear. And the name of the Lord, Lord Jesus, was held in high honor. They were seized with, they were all seized with fear in the name of the Lord, sorry, Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed their evil deeds. A number of them who practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came out to 50,000 drachmas, in other words, pieces of silver. Basically, a drachma or a piece of silver would what, what you would be uh, receiving at the end of your day, it's your day's wages. You work all day, and the guy you work for says, here you go, thank you for your, for your day here. So 50,000 days worth of silver, basically, here. Now we're going to skip down. Well, verse 20 says, in the way of the Lord, uh, in this way the, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. And we're going to skip down to verse 23 here. It says, about that time, uh, time, there arose a great disturbance about the way. And this is what they called Christianity at the time, the way, the believers of Jesus. A silversmith named Demetrius, who made silver shrines of Artemis. In other words, you know that little uh, meteorite? Silver shrines of Artemis brought in no little business for the craftsmen. He called them together along with the workmen and related tra- uh, trades and said, Men, you know we received good, uh, good income from this business. Uh, 
And you see and hear uh, how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large number of people uh, here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. He says that a man uh, says that man-made gods are no gods at all. Now imagine that. If you make it, it's not a god. What nonsense is that? That's how they looked at it. I mean, we made these things; they're gods. Because people would take them and they would go put them in their homes and they would worship them like they were a god. And we look at that and we think, how silly. But the world looks at that and says, I'm making money off this. This is not silly. Verse 27, it says, There is a danger not only to our trade, uh, that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the goddess Artemis will be discredited and the goddess herself. I mean, if it's magna, you know, if it's, if it's just magnificent, can be destroyed then is it a god? No. But these guys are worried about its magnificent being destroyed here. Who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world will be robbed of her divine majesty. When they heard this, they were furious and began shouting, Great is Artemis and the Ephes- or, or, of the Ephesians. Think about this. Believing in Jesus had such an effect in that town the demand for the idol went away. Now think of what kind of sin in our town, in our country, in our state, if the Christians rose up and said, we're no longer going to do that. Imagine what kind of financial effect it would have if we chose to do that. Our culture affecting the world's culture. That's what God is calling us to do. Verse 29, it says, Soon the whole city was in an uproar. They seized Gaius and uh, Aristarchus, Paul's traveling com- uh, companions from Macedonia, and rushed as one man into the theater. Now, don't think of galaxy theaters over here where they sit, you know, a couple of hundred people maybe. Think of this theater that's built into the side of this mountain that can hold 24 to 30,000 people. So you have 24 to 30,000 people rushing into the amphitheater. And it says in verse 30 that, that Paul wanted to appear before the crowd. He's like, man, i got to like, you know, 20 some odd thousand people here. I, wa- I want to go tell them about Jesus. But the disciples would not let him. Even some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul, sent him a message begging him not to venture into the theater. They're going to kill him if he shows up. The assembly was in, in confusion. Some, some were shouting one thing, some were another, shouting another thing, and most of the people did not even know why they were there. The Jews pushed Alexander to the front, and the, some of the crowd shouted instructions to him. He motioned for silence in order to make a defense before the people. Now let me just kind of tell you the, the rest of this here. Uh, they brought this guy up, um, Alexander, and Alexander's like, hey guys, don't, don't blame us. This is Paul. This is, this is not the Jews. But the crowd started shouting louder and louder for two hours. They couldn't get the crowd to be quiet. They just kept shouting and shouting. And I don't know if you've ever been to, you know, I, I've been to, to high school football games where there's been 30,000 people at. I mean, it's pretty loud. But then I've been to college games where, where there's 100,000 people in the stadium cheering at once. It's unbelievably loud. So you have all these people there and for two hours, and then finally a clerk gets up, a city official, and tries to get them to be quiet, and they finally, you know, they're quiet enough. And then he says to them, guys, you've got to be careful here because Paul is a Roman citizen. 
And Rome will come in and it will kick us out of leadership. And you think things are hard now. Wait till Rome shows up. So, so they, they quieten down here. In verse tw- uh, chapter uh, 20 it says, When the uproar had ended, Paul sent for his disciples and after encouraging them, said goodbye and set out for Macedonia. So apparently he understood, I need to get out of town to let this thing cool down. Three years of ministry and he won't see many of these people again. This is it. All of a sudden they're like, what do we do now? Paul, I mean, we've been following Paul. What, what do we do? We've been going to him. He's been telling us what to do. They're left to step up on their own. But with the key, which is the Holy Spirit. That's what changes lives. So this church is a very strong church, and their ministry continues in that area. Now, one of the things that surprises people about the Bible is it's not all these just separate books thrown in together. They interrelate. So the reason why I took the time to review today is because, you know, we have to understand Ephesus in the book of Acts to understand the book of Ephesians to the real people who did ministry with Paul that he's writing back to. So when Paul sat down and he says, I need to write these guys a letter, his love that he has in his heart or for these guys, he's picturing them in his mind. Think of somebody you just really love that's not, you know, doesn't live in your area. And when you think of their name, usually you, you can picture them in your, in your head, right? That's exactly what he's doing here. Well, let's do a couple of, of verses of Ephesians and we'll be done here. Ephesians 1. Paul. Now, this is a great way to start a letter. I don't know why we do it backwards. We always sign the, you know, dear sir and do all the whole letter and then you, you read the bottom. You read the whole thing and you go, oh, this letter's from my wife. I better read it over and pay attention this time. Thank you for laughing there. I know, it fell flat, didn't it? Yeah. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the, sta- to the saints in, Ephes- in Ephesus. And again, we've covered this before. To the saints. Who are the saints? You and I are the saints. The Bible clearly says in Philippians and here that we are the saints of God. So now we've elevated, you know, certain churches, certain things, elevated certain, you know, and they're like, well, saints so-and-so. Guess what? We're all in that area. We are all saints. To the saints in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to the God and the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with with every spiritual blessing in Christ. The Apostle Paul here says he is an apostle by the will of God. An apostle means one thing. We, you know, we're like the Apostle Paul. It means sent one. That's all it means. It's the guy that God says, I'm going to send you out to talk about me. And the word will here, it means pleasure, it means desire. The God's desire is that I am going to go out and do this. This is why Paul's saying, this is why I enjoy it. I'm doing what God wants me to do in life. Now, when we read this, we can put our own names in here, especially for, for those who have great confidence about where God has placed you in life. Wherever you are in life, understand why God has placed you there. He's placed you there because it's important, just like we learned from the book of Esther. Ministry, you know, for Esther, you know, she's sitting there asking, why am I here? 
And we learn it was for such a time as this, and she saved all the Jews. There was a reason why she was there. There's a reason why God has put us in the place that we're in. Ministry is not just working for a church. Ministry is being a Christian and living for God in this ungodly world. That is what true ministry is. So how do I know the will of God for for your life? Well, this is what Paul did. This is how Paul knew he was in the will of God. He got to know Jesus. Plain and simple. That's what he did. And over time, as he followed Jesus... He found himself in the middle of the will of God. All the apostle, did, uh, apostle Paul did was the next thing that God told him to do. That's all he did in life. Yet he had a pheno- yes, I mean he had a phenomenal conversion experience. But after that, what did he do? The next thing that God told him to do. Are you happy in your career? Are you happy with what uh, what you do with your time when you were awake? Now. I don't mean uncomfortable. Because some people say, well, I'm not happy, so therefore I'm uncomfortable. So no, I don't mean that. Esther was uncomfortable where God had placed her in the palace. Paul was uncomfortable in certain situations. If you're not happy, maybe the Lord is trying to get you into his will. And that starts with following his ways. Well, that sounds great, Pastor Allen, but how do I do that? Well, first off, it starts with one thing, getting to know God. Secondly, it's about making more godly decisions in your life. How would Jesus want you to make that decision? How would Jesus want me to to act in my job? How would Jesus want me to act at the school that I go to? How would Jesus want me to act around my friends? How would Jesus want me to act in my life? For me, I have, you know, sometimes I get the greatest joy out of of the places that God has me. I mean, like today, I get the privilege of performing Alan and Carla's wedding. I mean, what's more beautiful than that? That is totally awesome. They were sitting here one day, and after the teaching, they came up and said, you know what? I think we should be married. And I said, okay, when do you want to do it? Next weekend, let's go. They said, well, no, let's hold off. Let's plan a little bit. And I said, okay. But other times, I tell you, I wouldn't wish my job on anyone at all. And I won't go into those stories. But the point is, if I relied on my feelings about where I was in life, if I relied on, on the world's version of happy then I would be all over the place depending on what was happening that week or that day, wouldn't I? See, when we rely on happy, the world's version, we're all over the place. But when we rely on joy, which is God's version of happiness, of knowing that God has placed you in a certain place for a certain reason, this is why it's so important to allow the Holy Spirit to give you joy. Because we need to make, you know, we need to have joyful Christians making good decisions for every type of job out there, from teachers to lawyers, from guys, you know, blue-collar guys that are working down in the factories to white-collar guys who are stuck up in the office, which the blue-collar guys can't stand. But we need godly Christians making godly decisions in every place that we're at. We need godly Christians raising our children, 
making good decisions. Now, it won't mean you won't make mistakes, but it starts with making good decisions. We need to be great Christians in whatever position the Lord has put us in, period. Well, that's it for today because we have a wedding to enjoy. We've got finger food, so give us about 20 minutes after we, uh, after we pray here. Uh, Randy will come up and do a song, and, and uh, you'll be dismissed. We'll have finger foods out there for you and stuff, and then we'll bring everybody back in, and we'll have this wonderful wedding today. So why don't we pray? Lord, I just thank you for this joyous occasion. I thank you for the times when, uh, uh, when you have me and you have other people just do stuff that we just totally enjoy in life. I pray that you don't allow the, the unhappiness of, of certain situations, the, the world's version of unhappiness, to, to get, in our relation, get in our way of our relationship with you. That we rely on you for our joy in our life. We rely on you on, on knowing that you love us so much that you will not allow us to get hurt beyond the place, you know, beyond what we can handle. That there will be times when you'll just give us unspeakable joy in our life and we may not even realize it's coming from you. I pray, Lord, as we go through the book of Ephesians, that we take the things that Paul is teaching to those that he loves so much, we take them to heart and we implement those in our life. Now the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord's face shine down upon you. May his grace be ever, you know, everlasting and so bright in your life that you can't help but notice it. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen, amen.